open with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. This morning we are going to finish this passage. We have been camping out here really for the last four or five weeks, considering the subject of elders from this text and other related texts. And so this morning, we'll finish this up. We're, we're going to read verse 5. Our focus is going to be in the texts that, that have to do with this one. Begin by reading together First Peter chapter five, beginning in verse one. The apostle So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shame and gain, but over those in your charge, but being examined. And when the chief shepherd in crown of glory, likewise, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all is the proud, but give grace to the humble. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we are grateful for Christ grateful for the chief shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who sheds his blood that we might be reconciled to God. Christ has given an example to elders how they are to shepherd, following the example of The chief shepherd has also given us as his people instructions how his bride, how the church is to order herself, is to conduct herself in the time of her sojourning. You have not left us in the dark on these matters. So Lord, we are grateful that we have been able to spend together looking at what teaches us about the office of elders, and I time this morning as we consider the obligations and responsibilities members have to the shepherds. Lord, that we all would be a people here at this church, and that all of your people in all of your churches would be a people who work together to further the name and the glory of Christ, and to to a saving knowledge of Him. I ask this all in Jesus' name. 
I think one of the saddest and most heartbreaking and sometimes even infuriating things that can be present in the life of a church is when there are strong divisions, particularly between the pastors of a church and the members of the church. Sometimes these divisions can be over incredibly petty matters. There's sharp disagreements over the color of the carpet or what color the walls should be painted. These are, these are sadly and grievously real issues that have occurred, caused major divisions within churches. There's a sharp disagreement over whether or not there should be the performance of solos in worship. Sometimes these divisions can be the fault of the pastors. If there are pastors especially who are manipulative, selfish, who are using their office simply to build a kingdom and a name for themselves, well then, yeah, there's probably going to be some, some divisions there. Because the work of a pastor is not about having a personal platform. It is ultimately about exalting the name of Christ and shepherding and guiding and teaching the people of God to walk in faithfulness to Him, not to the glory of His own name. Sometimes, as I mentioned last week, divisions are the result of the constant turnover of pastors in a single church. They come and they go year after year. Sometimes this is the way that the actual denomination or the ecclesial body is, is ordered, but, but particularly in our context, in, in Baptist context, it tends to be the case that churches are just used as, as platforms, as, as stepping stones to the next greatest and best thing. It's, it's like moving up the career ladder. That can severely sever the trust that is supposed to exist between pastors and church members, and the result is that it creates divisions that are very difficult to overcome, and that tend to take many, many years to do so. Sometimes, however, these divisions can be the fault of church members, of countless stories of men who have begun pastoring churches, and, and they want to see the church flourish, and, and they want the church to be obedient to the Word of God, and they want it to be a spiritually healthy church. And, and then the pastor learns of some flagrant sin that is being committed. A man is leaving his, his wife for another woman. A, a woman is spreading all kinds of false rumors and gossip about others. And when the pastor learns of it out of obligation to the Word of God and a love for the sinner and a desire to see them repent in walking faithfully with Christ, when the pastor goes to confront that person, he enrages the members of the church not because he's violating the Word of God, but oftentimes because there's, there's deep friendships and family ties there. People don't want conflict. People don't want those relationships in any way to 
have any sorts of conflict, stumbling blocks. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. In such cases, the church members are more concerned about avoiding this conflict than they are with being faithful to Christ, the soul of the sinning brother or sister. And that can result in nasty divisions. No matter the reasons, whether they are justified or otherwise, it is a sad state of affairs when churches are in disarray and the members are divided from their pastors because this is not how the church is supposed to function. This is not the biblical ideal and vision that is presented to us and and commanded for us to follow. The church is to be a place of unity around the Gospel of Christ, of love, of humility, of perseverance, of conviction. It's to be a place of biblical faithfulness. We are all faithfully walking with Christ together. It is to be a place of worship, all of which is oriented and under the person of Jesus Christ. It is to be a kind of foretaste of the kingdom to come. It is to be a place where the members of the church and the pastors work in concert together to exalt the name of Christ and to grow up and mature together in Him. That is explicitly what Paul says the church is supposed to be in Ephesians 4. And When this is the state of the church, when, when the church is building itself up together in love, it is a beautiful thing to see. It's a glorious thing to be a part of. It is very much a matter of witnessing here on earth the reality that the gates of hell shall never prevail against the bride of Christ. It is a foretaste. People gathering together, singing together of their common Savior, of their common salvation. People longing for that day of His return to come together, people encouraging, exhorting, and stirring one another on to greater faithfulness, greater obedience, greater love to Christ. It's it's contagious. Now, to get to this state, the church, among other things, needs to be properly ordered. It needs to conform itself fully to the Word of God. And that means, on the one hand, having faithful, godly, and qualified men who serve pastors or elders or shepherds of the church. Men who shepherd the people of God to this very obedience. And over the last several weeks, we have, of course, spent a significant amount of time looking at, of course not exhausting, what the Bible teaches about elders in the church. Who are they to be? What are they to 
do in the church? What kind of sin, what kind of quality, character are they to have? But on the other hand, a healthy and faithful church also requires a membership that understands their obligations and duties to one another and also to the elders. And this is what this morning we're going to look at as we finish up 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, before moving on and then concluding 1 Peter next week we're going to consider what Scripture teaches about duties of church elders. Now, again, we've seen what the duties of elders are to the church. But what are some of the duties of church members to their elders? This is a subject that I think often gets neglected, that is often not talked about, not preached about. And partly, and there's a variety of reasons, but partly it's just because of the sheer awkwardness that can be present when you're talking about what the members' obligations are to the pastors, and of course that includes yourself as you're, you're speaking about these things, right? But in many ways, it's no different than how parents need to teach their children what the children's duties are to their parents. Right? It, it can't just be assumed that children just know they're to honor their parents, they're to obey their parents. Right? That's something that has to be taught. It has to be learned. It has to be practiced. And likewise, just as the Bible teaches us what the duties of elders are to the church and to the members of the church, it also teaches us what the duties of church members are to elders. And so for the good and the, the and the maturity of the church, we need to consider these matters as well. Now, there are at least six duties that we find in Scripture that church members have towards their elders. There, there are indeed more, but we're just going to look at six uh, this morning, and in no particular order. This is not ranked in any way. These are just six of the duties that we find in Scripture. And the first duty of church members is that they submit themselves to the shepherding of their elders. They submit themselves to the shepherding of their elders. Now, we see this command in several places in Scripture, and one of them, of course, is in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice with me again what Peter says at the beginning of chapter 5. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Peter, of course, has been exhorting the elders of the church to shepherd the church well, to set a good example of godliness for the members of the church. And then he turns his attention to the youth of the church. That, that could be those who are, who are children, it could be young adults, right? it's just those who are typically younger, and he tells them specifically, be subject to the elders. Now, we're not told exactly why this group of church members is singled out here, but possibly it's because of those who are younger, and particularly young men, can have a natural tendency 
tendency to want to disregard the counsel of those who are older and more mature than they are. They can have a dangerous and even prideful desire to lead while they're still very much immature. And they need to learn to serve. They need to learn to recognize and honor whatever authorities are over them. But whatever the exact reason is, Peter tells them to have the same disposition toward the elders of the church as all Christians are to have towards every ruling and governing authority of the state, as servants are to have to their masters, and as wives are to have to their husbands. They are to submit to their leadership. Now, even though Peter singles out the younger here, this is, of course, the same command that is given to all church members elsewhere. In Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, for example, the author of Hebrews says to the Christians there, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And we know that he's not just talking about leaders and just rulers in general that that are governing authorities, but he's speaking specifically about pastors because he goes on to say, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So, church members are to be submissive to the leadership and counsel of their pastors. They are to recognize that their pastors are not above them. They're not superior to them, but they are over them in terms of leadership and that the pastors are biblically required to watch over their souls. That's something they'll have to give an accounting for. Now, we live, of course, in a very anti-authority age. The air that we breathe is is one of absolute autonomy. No one can tell me what to do. You do you, I'll do me, and we just go about our own business. And because of this, there can often be misunderstandings of what submission actually means, and there can just be a natural aversion to the idea. I'm my own sovereign, and no one rules over me. So I think we need to clarify that this submission here is not some sort of blind submission. Right? It's not a, some cult-like submission where the, the leader can never be questioned, or that he himself can never receive counsel, that he himself can never receive correction, that he's some quasi-godlike figure. It's not absolute in some sense like that. You'll remember, for example, that when we looked at submission to the state, and submission to masters, and wives, submission to their husbands. It was not some absolute and blind submission. If a pastor is counseling you or persuading you to do something that is sinful, or that violates your conscience to break the commands of God and to go against the Word of God, you obviously are to disregard that counsel. It is assumed 
You don't submit to that. What Peter is assuming here, and what the author of Hebrews is assuming in his own and that the elders are being faithful to their biblical responsibilities to watch over and shepherd the flock. They are leading well. They are being biblical and faithful. They are imitating Christ. In 1 Peter 5, the assumption before we even get to verse 5 is that these elders are not greedy for gain. They're not those who are domineering over the flock. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, before you get to the author of Hebrews' command, there, the leaders of the church are such that you can consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's the assumption that leads to the commands. And to men such as this, you ought to submit yourself to their counsel, to their exhortations, corrections, rebukes, and encouragements. So let me just give you a couple of quick examples by way of illustration. Let's say that there are some people in the church, a man and a woman. The pastor learns that they have struck up a relationship and they've decided to move in together without being married. They have no intentions of, of being married. It's like not even on their radar. It is the usual, everyday, cultural, meet somebody, a couple months later, move in sort of thing. Problem, of course, with this particular relationship is that they're not married when they're moving in together. And so, biblically, they should not be sharing a home together until they get married. Now, if the pastor meets with this particular couple and he says to them, you know, I care about you. I love you. I want you to do well. I want your life to flourish. I want your relationships to flourish. And the pastor tells them, right now, you are as a professing Christian, living contrary to the Word of God. You are engaging in immorality and sin, breaking the commands of God and breaking the very design that He has for a man and a woman to come together in marriage. If He tells them that you need to honor the Lord and obey the Word of God and in doing so, repent and move out. And if you're going to get married, work towards that marriage. The pastor is giving them biblical counsel. And because it is in agreement with the Word of God, they need to submit to it. Because in such a circumstance, to reject that counsel would be to reject the very Word of God itself. Not because the pastor has some inherent authority within him, but because he's standing upon the Word of God. Or to use another example that's rather common in many churches. If a church member comes to a pastor and says, Pastor, I'm I'm just feeling really disconnected from the church. 
And the pastor knows that this member is largely absent from all of the meetings of the church. Maybe they're sporadic in their attendance of the Sunday gathering. Maybe they're absent from other meetings. Maybe they never have anyone in their homes. They never take the initiative to do that very thing. There's there's no effort to foster any kind of discipling relationships. If the pastor tells that member, you know, well, so-and-so, I suspect I know why feel disconnected. It's because you actually are disconnected. You've disconnected yourself from the body. And he tells them you need to prioritize meeting with and gathering with other people and carrying out the biblical command to show hospitality, to welcome people into your home. The pastor is giving this person very obvious and biblical counsel based on all of what Scripture teaches us about how we are to grow together in Christ. He's not telling them to do anything unbiblical. He's not laying upon them some unbearable and heavy yoke. He simply sees one of the causes of their symptoms of loneliness and provides a biblical prescription. And to counsel such as this, and similar examples that we could name, to counsel where the elders of the church are trying to shepherd you into a life of faithfulness and maturity in Christ, Peter says, the author of Hebrews says, you ought to submit yourself to the leadership of the elders, to the counsel of the elders. So that's that's one thing. This command, this duty of church members is to submit themselves to the elders. Now, moving on, and and of course we're going to need to be more concise on these these next ones, a second duty of church members is to pray for their pastors. To pray for their pastors. This is something that the Apostle Paul, of course, was constantly requesting for himself in his own ministry. He made it his own work to constantly be in prayer for the churches. The other apostles, similarly, we see in Acts chapter 6, said that it was their primary responsibility to devote themselves to teaching the Word of God and to prayer. And so also must it be the case that churches pray for the elders who are over them. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said to the church there, he said, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, he wrote, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, the author of Hebrews says, after that text we just read a moment ago, he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. The work of pastors is chiefly a spiritual work. 
They are engaged in a spiritual battle. They must shepherd the church in a spiritual walk. Sometimes they grow weary in this work. Sometimes there are burdens that they have to carry alone. Some private situation they're aware of that weighs on their own soul. They often see up close and personal how destructive sin can be in people's lives, and of course, they have to battle their own temptations. And so spiritual weapons are vital, necessary, and chief among them is the work of prayer. Now, I suspect, too, that as we began thinking this morning about fortunate divisions that tend to exist in a lot of churches between pastors and the church members, I suspect that if there was more prayer going both ways, there would be less of those divisions. Because it is going to be incredibly hard to hate the very person that you are in constant prayer over. So this is one of those things that we've, we've even seen before in, in, in 1 Peter, where prayer is vital to the whole health of the church, to the unity of the church, and then, of course, to the work of the pastors in the church. And so to foster that unity between the church and pastors in particular, the pastors must not only be in prayer for the church, but the church for their pastors. Third, it is the members to bring their troubles and temptations to the pastors. It is the duty of members to bring their troubles and temptations to their pastors. Now, of course, this does not mean that pastors are the only ones in the church who can counsel and shepherd people who are battling difficult circumstances and temptations. In a healthy church, members will have relationships with other members where discipleship is taking place, and a lot of those conversations can be you know, taking place between the members themselves. But it is worth stating that pastors should be an important resource for you when you are going through various trials. I think too often in our psychological and secular age, pastors are viewed as just the people you go to listen to in a public setting on Sundays. But if you need real counseling, you go to a therapist or you go to a psychologist as if their counsel is based in some sort of scientific and objective fact like a doctor looking at x-rays and being able to diagnose the problem. But the vast majority of time, therapists are counseling, they're counseling based on all manners of atheistic and naturalistic assumptions And a lot of times, the issues that people are dealing with are issues that require biblical guidance and instruction. I mean, I'm I'm grateful that now, in response to a lot of this, a, a movement known as the biblical counseling movement has arisen to counter the many false assumptions that have arisen, particularly in the 20th century, and that even many Christians have 
that all of their psychological and emotional struggles need psychology as their remedy when it's often the case that what they need is the wisdom of the Bible. A lot of the deep, dark, spiritual depressions that people go in find a beautiful remedy, especially in the book of Psalms. It is there for our edification. The point is simply that pastors are charged with watching over your souls, which means that they have to watch over your heart. They have to watch over your inner man, your psychological self, if you will. And so it's imperative that church members do not cut themselves off from a gift that God has given to them in the church and turn immediately, almost as an impulse, to the wisdom of the world when the wisdom of the Bible is at their fingertips. Nothing much more could be said on this matter in particular, but for the sake of time, we need to move on to a fourth duty. And the fourth duty of church members is to vindicate their pastors from false charges. It is to vindicate their pastors from false charges. That that is, to to come to their defense when they are being falsely maligned. Now, as I was studying this this passage and this subject this past week, I I came across an an old uh, book by an old Baptist named Benjamin Keach who made this particular insightful point. from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. And there the Apostle Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Which means, in essence, on the basis of sound, verifiable, provable evidence. And Keach highlighted this duty as an example of what not admitting a charge or a false charge looks like. This duty to vindicate elders falsely charged. It is to be expected that even the most godly men are going to have their characters assassinated in the work of the gospel. It is one of the cunning works of Satan and the work of the flesh to cause suspicion and to undermine trust. We see as well that the Apostle Paul himself had to deal with what he called super-apostles in his day. They were men who were attempting to undermine his own ministry by bringing false accusations against him, undermining his character and his ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, in fact, we find they had been slandering Paul to the Corinthians as a man who's only bold towards them when he's away from them. And then he's meek and he's humble when he's around them. They said of him in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, they said of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. He's not somebody worth listening to. This is a weak man. He only writes like a strong man. They were saying, in essence, that Paul was a two-faced man. He was 
one way when he was with them, and he was another way when he was absent. And these, of course, were nothing more than slanderous charges intended to undermine his gospel ministry and for the super apostles to exalt themselves. I mean, we we know from the book of Acts, we know from Paul's correspondences with different churches, we know the level of suffering that he endured physically for the well-being of these people. He's, he's, he's going from place to place, and even as he's traveling, he's traveling through wildernesses, he's, he's having to deal with shipwrecks, and bodily illnesses, and beatings, and persecution, all for the sake of the well-being of the churches in the spirit of the gospel. They were false charges. And what the Corinthian church should have done when these super apostles came, is defended Paul and repudiated these super apostles. They knew of his character. He had ministered among them, worked among them, and led many of them to Christ. So if the charges were clearly false, they should not have admitted them and rather repudiated and vindicated Paul so that he would not have to vindicate himself, and so that the false teachers, the super apostles, would not spread their leaven within the church. So, it's the duty of members to vindicate their pastors from false charges, but fifth, and on the flip side of this, If there are substantiated and verifiable charges, if an elder is walking in sin, if he's abandoning the gospel, if he's corrupting the word of God, if he's living contrary to the word of God, it is also the responsibility of the church to discipline pastors who are in sin. In the very next verse, 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, Paul says, speaking of these elders, he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This is a command for the church to carry out church discipline on an elder who persists in sin. Now, ideally, ideally, of course, you have other elders within the church who can help shepherd the people of God along in this process. But we have seen before that ultimately church discipline, that is the, the act on behalf of the membership of the church, the act of removing somebody, no longer considering them, as a brother or sister in Christ because they're walking contrary to the gospel. The act of church discipline is ultimately an act that falls upon the church as a whole to carry out. The membership of the church is where Christ has placed the authority of the keys of the kingdom. We see this in Matthew chapter 18. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 especially. And if there is an elder in the church who is living in sin or who is preaching false doctrine, 
the members of the church must bring that elder under the discipline of the church. So elders are, of course, and, and by a clear implication of this, they are not an ultimate, absolute authority in the church. They are not kings who cannot be deposed. They serve with the consent of the church. Their authority is derived ultimately from the Word of God and secondarily from the church appointing them to their office through the laying on of hands. And so if they begin to go astray, if they begin to deviate from the Word of God, the church must carry out the authority given to it by Christ to remove the elder from his office. So it's, it's both sides. The vindication of false accusations, the carrying out of discipline on substantiated accusations. Lastly, a sixth duty of church members that we find in Scripture is that they are commanded to honor their pastors, show honor to their pastors. That is, in essence, to be respectful and to hold in high esteem those who labor for their welfare. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in 12 and 13, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, this is no hero worship here. Right? This is no celebrity worship. The same way that children are to honor their parents or that we are to show honor to rulers and those who are in power, elders who shepherd well should be shown honor. They have a very serious calling which is for the good of the church and which they will be held accountable for by God. And so those that understand that calling and carry it out faithfully ought to be honored. I know that ever since I've become a Christian, every church that, that I've been, that Leah has been a part of, that has been a sound, faithful, healthy church with faithful elders. I'm grateful for the influence of each one of those men in my life in those various seasons where we were among them. Some of them have had great impact and influence on how, how I myself perceive and view the local church, how I treat the Word of God how I walk with Christ, how I should lead my own family, and more. And, and in a very real sense, even though I'm not in those churches anymore, I still consider those men to be my pastors from afar. I still call them. I still talk to them. I still need counsel and guidance from them. The Lord places for us, shepherds in the church to do that very thing. To shepherd us along throughout our lives. To give us needed counsel and, and wisdom and in 
encouragement and in corrections when we, when we need them. They're a gift to the body of Christ. And because of that, we ought to honor all of them. Now, these are, of course, just some of the duties that we find in Scripture that church members are to have towards their pastors. But I want to close this morning by just acknowledging that it is very obvious that all of these basic obligations require a great deal of trust between church members and the pastors. The pastors cannot have a disposition of suspicion towards the members as if all of the members are His enemies. And the members, likewise, must be able to entrust themselves to the pastors if the pastors are to watch over their souls. And because of this level of trust that is required, it is especially important for pastors not to give any reasons to break that trust. It is already a shameful day that we live in when so many false teachers and prideful men have used their office of pastor to take advantage of the church and at times to abuse people under their watch. And I want to say very clearly, we ought to make no mistake about it, those men will not go unpunished. All of them will be held to an account. That is the climate that they have created. One of deep mistrust and suspicion. Because of this, it is especially important that even as we think about raising up elders among us, it is especially important that those qualifications of being men who are above reproach in their lives, it is especially important that we heed that instruction well. It is especially important that to use Paul's language in 1 Timothy, elders rule well. They submit themselves to the Word of God first before they call anyone else to submit themselves to the Word of God. They must not only be faithful to the Bible, but I think also as a matter of prudence, they must be even more transparent with what they're thinking and how they're arriving at their various decisions. I remember hearing the account of when Mark Dever's church first elders at their church in D.C. And not long after they did this, there was a, a very clear case of immorality that came to light with one of the church members. Elders unanimously agreed that the person needed to be placed under church discipline. They, they were not repenting of their sin. And the elders were right in their decision but they blindsided the church with the recommendation. They didn't give them any notice, which then caused suspicion 
to arise about the elders unnecessarily. It was a mistake with respect to carrying out what was biblically right. And it was a mistake that they acknowledged and subsequently they made changes so that if any potential discipline cases came up again, the church would be informed months before it was asked to carry discipline. It is especially important now with the level of mistrust that exists out there to be very transparent how you are arriving at decisions. This is one of the reasons why I've been spending five weeks now on the subject of elders. I think this is a very biblical thing to be moving towards, and that is the reason why I'm placing this before you. You as the congregation need to be thinking and considering who the men could be who are willing and qualified and able to serve as elders in the future here. The point, ultimately, is that the elders at Capitol Hill, and the elders at any church, have to grow themselves, have to learn. They have to learn how to shepherd together, they not only have to consider what is right biblically to do, but how also to carry out what is right for the well-being of the church. Pastors are, of course, going to make mistakes. They are not going to be perfect men. They are going to have to grow themselves. And ideally, the pastors, the church has 20, 30, or 40 years down the road, will be better and more wise than the ones that they first began with. They will falter. And of course, church members will also falter. Which is why I think Peter probably concludes with this additional exhortation at the end of verse 5. An address to everyone. Where he says, to all people in the church, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace the humble. The church is fundamentally a people who follow Jesus Christ. And Christ is the chief display of what humility looks like. It is Christ who, though being eternally in the presence of the Father, though being eternally the exalted Son of God, Though being clothed fully in the divine nature, Christ did not count this state, this position of equality with God, something to be held on to. But what does Paul say in Philippians? He says that he emptied himself by becoming a servant. That he, he left the comforts of heaven he clothed Himself in our frail humanity. He considered the needs of our sinful selves greater than holding on to exalted glory. And He entered into the world to give His life for sinners that we might be saved through Him. It is 
this mindset especially, this humility that we all are to have towards one another. And if we do, if we are patient with one another as God is patient, if we are gracious towards one another as God is gracious towards us, and if we are humble towards one another as Christ humbled Himself towards us, the church will flourish. And the pastors of the church and the members of the church will work together in concert. They will work together in harmony to fight the good fight in the name of Christ and ultimately to bring sinners to a saving knowledge of Christ. That ultimately is our goal. That's what our life is about. That's what the life of the church is to be about. God in Christ through His apostles gives us these instructions on how we are to order and conduct ourselves to further the name of Christ and so present foretaste of the kingdom to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know from Your Word that all of us battle. That the weapons of our warfare are not waged with swords, flesh and blood. That we are fighting against spiritual powers, principalities, and powers of the air. We have to wage war against our own sinful flesh and daily pick up our cross to follow Christ. And Lord, as You have called us out of our sin, out of darkness, into the light, united us with Christ, and and ultimately to the bride as well, to the whole church. Father, You have given us instructions and commands on how we are to love one another and how we are to live with one another in the time of our sojourning. And so I pray for all of us here in particular. I pray that you would be gracious to us and that we would be a people who ultimately now and in the next year and in ten years and decades beyond, that we would be able to be a people who are a light shining in darkness and reflecting the beauty of the design that you have for your church, for your people. Father, that you would be merciful to us, that when we stray and when we sin, we would have brothers and sisters who can correct and rebuke us, and that we would have elders as well that can shepherd us ultimately to glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name.